How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our lesson in First Thessalonians, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure we are spiritually prepared and focused to get into the Word in this lesson and that God the Holy Spirit can use it profitably in our spiritual growth. Our Father, we are so thankful that we can come together to study your Word, to be reminded of these eternal principles to focus upon our own spiritual life and spiritual growth, our continued relationship with you. And, Father, we know that that we cannot do this on our own, that the spiritual life in the church age is an impossible life, but it can only be uh, fulfilled, it can only be carried out if we are walking by the Spirit. It is by your power and not our might that we are able to uh, implement the principles of your word, and grow spiritually. Now, Father, as we continue our study in First Thessalonians, help us to understand uh, the principles here and to see the application and implication of what Paul is saying. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, in the, in the previous lesson, just to give us a little review, because as uh, we go through this First Thess series, it's not one that I'm teaching uh, continuously. I'm not going every week. It's one that we're recording early uh, for for the benefit of times when I am either ill or out of the country. So what we are reminded of is that Paul is getting past his introduction here in the first in the first chapter, and he is talking a little more personally to the responders. This is one of his most personal letters, and he is uh, focused on uh, affirming his own teaching, his own uh, apostolic leadership towards the congregation that he left in uh, uh, Thessalonica. We saw in Acts chapter 17 that when Paul went, he started in the synagogue. And his, his goal was to go into the synagogue and to begin to teach uh, Acts 17, 2, 3, and 4 talks about the fact that he opened, he had a dialogue, and in typical, typically in a synagogue, a visiting rabbi might be asked to uh, teach, and so he taught, he opened the scriptures, we're told, we understand what it means by dialogue in the next participles, that he, uh, that he opened the word and he explained what was going on there, specifically related to the Messiah. So he's going back to Old Testament prophecies to show how Jesus uh, fulfilled those prophecies. He also is reminding them of what has been accomplished by God's grace uh, in their life since he was there. He was in the synagogue for three weeks. But when we look at, at, at what's said in Acts 17, he was probably in, uh, in, in Thessalonica for no more than three months. Most people say two to three months. And he did an extraordinary amount of teaching in those two or three months. And as a result of that, they, the church was planted and established even in the midst of opposition and persecution, and they began to grow. And as he is talking to them and reminding them of, of what was accomplished there, he talks about the fact that he himself modeled spiritual courage and boldness. In, in verse 2, as we see here uh, on the screen, He reminded them, you yourselves, brethren, know that our coming to you was not in vain, that God the Holy Spirit used it and produced spiritual growth and stability in your lives. And he said, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now, what I want to focus on in this lesson is where we stopped the last time, 
where I was talking about spiritual courage and developing that uh, topic, that doctrine, out from this lesson, because this is not something I think I've taught before, but something that is important, that, that we're in a spiritual battle, we're in spiritual warfare, we're facing the three enemies of Satan, the world, and our own sin nature, and our volition often seems to be cowed because of the overwhelming power in and influence of one or all three of our enemies. And so Christians are always seeming to fight an uphill battle spiritually because we deal with especially this enemy of the sin nature within us, which is always influencing us to go in the opposite direction. But then we face opposition from the world as well, and that opposition from the world often is of such a nature that it it, it gives a basis for justification to the sin nature to not say something, to not bring up the gospel, to not take a stand for the truth of God's word. And often we have two issues that are going on is, number one, uh, taking a stand, and secondly, how we take the stand. And most of us have problems in a lot of situations because uh, we may not have as much confidence in our understanding of the gospel or our understanding of how to answer things. Uh, we, we, so we're, we're a little intimidated to begin with, and then a typical psychological reaction when you're in a position of intimidation is, is to become defensive, to become angry, to become a little bit resentful, and that can come across in our, in our attitude, in our presentation of the gospel. And there's a tendency and a trap that I think we've all fallen into at times, when we're witnessing to somebody and there may be an opposition or they're just asking some tough questions or maybe uh, there's some uh, anger, resentment in their background towards Christians for whatever reason, and rather than being able to just have a relaxed mental attitude based on grace orientation, what happens is we start to become defensive. We we read those nonverbal signals off of the other person, and we start getting a little bit nervous or a little bit irritated and, and reactionary. And next thing you know, uh, you have two people talking who are trying to prove the other person wrong, and a conversation related to evangelism has deteriorated into an argument about who's right or who knows more uh, about the subject. And we have to learn to diffuse that and to to ig- ignore that. And the Apostle Paul was one, of course, who was exceptionally well-trained and was absolutely brilliant in his understanding not only of the Jewish position and where they were coming from and where they would and what they would say because number 1 he was trained and uh, under one of the greatest rabbis of his generation Gamaliel and he was uh, arguably the greatest student that Gamaliel ever had and he knew as any um Any student of Torah, any Pharisee of the Pharisees would have known in that generation, he would have known the entire Old Testament in the Hebrew from memory, backwards and forwards. And so he had all of that experience behind him. Plus, for the last approximately eight to ten years, as he had been involved in the first missionary journey, now into the second missionary journey, he had faced a number of opponents within the synagogues with their arguments. So he had the experience, plus he had the academic training, and he had a a brilliant mind, and so he was as prepared as anybody. But the bottom line that we all need to remember is that the opposition that we incur when we're presenting the gospel to somebody who may be attacking us isn't based on Facts. It's not based on reason. It's not based on intellectual superiority. It's not about how much we know ultimately or how well we can articulate the gospel ultimately or how well we can present our case ultimately. We need to do the best we can, but we have a, 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 we have a secret power, and that's God the Holy Spirit. 
And so God the Holy Spirit is going to use whatever we say in the life of the other person, and it's going to produce one of two responses. It's going to produce a positive response where they want to know more and they want to listen, they find it interesting. That may be all it is, is just curiosity, and then stop at a certain point. Or it may generate a hostile reaction. And it doesn't matter how good we are, the issue is going to be a spiritual issue. Jesus taught the truth in a uh, gentle, humble, gracious manner, and yet it generated uh, an incredible amount of hostility. Same with Paul. He, he He said everything correctly, and he said it the right way. He did the right thing, and he did the right thing in the right way and yet it still generated hostility. Now, if we could just get that through our heads, that we can just relax because because we're going to see this kind of response, most of us think that, well, if I can just say it right or, or put it out there right or say it the right way or say the right thing, then it will make a difference. And the fallacy there is we're thinking that ultimately our effectiveness in witnessing is based upon our uh, understanding of the intellectual issues, our ability to uh, quickly turn a phrase and respond uh, to what somebody else uh, presents as an objection. And so we tend to get all caught up in this, and we need to just take time to pray, uh, let God the Holy Spirit calm us down, and just, just to relax. And uh, that just, I think that just comes with time. I mean, I'm still learning uh, how to do that. And uh, different people have different personalities. Some people are, 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 are a little less uh, focused on some things or, or maybe they're a little less reactionary. It just, it, it just depends. But the core issue is going to be a spiritual issue and a character issue. And that's what Paul brings out here when he says to the Thessalonians, as you know, We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. And so that's talking about the communication, the communication of the gospel uh, to the Thessalonians. Now, he reminds them of all of this, and the focal point here is really on their boldness, their courage to present the gospel in the midst of conflict. That's what we see in that last phrase of verse 2, in the midst of conflict. And that's something that comes with maturity, and I think it comes with experience. One of the things I I often say uh, with with young pastors is there's the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher is a communication gift. It's not a learning gift. And I've run into a lot of people over the years who somehow have a mystical view of the gift of pastor teacher or evangelist that a pastor teacher or evangelist just they can just sit down and read the bible and they're going to understand it and and that that's an understanding and a study issue that's not a communication issue the gift of pastor teacher is a leadership gift that relates to communication and evangelism is a communication gift but the learning, the acquisition of knowledge, the understanding of Scripture, it, it has to come under the general standards of going through a tr- system of training in order to acquire knowledge. And so a man can go through seminary and acquire a lot of information, and some of that is going to transition to knowledge. But to get wisdom... And using biblical terminology, chokhmah from the Old Testament, wisdom is a skill at doing something, and a skill comes from uh, comes from experience, using things. Uh, and so, when you get in the pulpit, you may be a, a com- good communicator. You have the spiritual gift of communication, but you're not necessarily going to be a great orator. You start off and you're, you're young, you're nervous, you've, you're, you've mastered your material, uh, you have a spiritual gift and you're using it, but it still takes time, it still takes practice. And we learn often by our failures, we learn from uh, not doing as well. And the only way a pastor can really learn to, to uh, teach from the pulpit is to teach from the pulpit. 
And the only way a person can learn to become more effective in witnessing to people, uh, aside from the study part of it, is they have to witness to people. And especially if you don't have the gift of, wit- uh, of evangelism. And so you have to work at that. And uh, unfortunately, it's like riding a bicycle. You've got to fall off a few times before you get the hang of it. And a lot of people don't want to get the hang of it because they don't want to fall off a few times. But in order to get the hang of it, you have to be willing to risk falling off a few times. And as you take that, those steps of faith to trust God, uh, in the midst of evangelism, especially in hostile circumstances or situations, then we see how God provides for us and sustains us uh, in those situations. So this is what Paul has learned, and this is what I want to hone in on a little bit uh, in this in this lesson. Here's a map showing where Thessalonica is located. Up here in the upper right, we see Philippi. As as Paul came across from Troas, they landed at the port of Neapolis, and then they went to Philippi, which was a Roman colony. And there they were rejected, they were abused, the Jews in the synagogues reacted to them, the Gentiles reacted to them, and it was a very negative, hostile situation. They left there, they left there, and then they made their way uh, to Thessalonica, and they're going to be faced with a lot of hostility and reaction there. So he's a- exactly right that he is uh, boldly proclaiming, boldly speaking the gospel in the midst of conflict. Now, this was typical of Paul. Acts 19.8 says the same kind of thing. He goes into the synagogue, which was his standard operation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, but he always started with a congregation in a synagogue that had an Old Testament framework of understanding God as the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, a God who had promised redemption. They had a framework for understanding sacrifices and the need for substitutionary a substitutionary payment for sin that was uh, seen in the various sacrifices. And so he's got a frame of reference there that is biblically solid from the Torah. And so he can start there and then build. They would be familiar with Messianic prophecies, and so he could build from that. Once he had a reaction point, now what was interesting was when he went to, when he went to Ephesus, he was in the, um, which is the context of this verse, he was in the synagogue for three months before it started a conflict. Whereas when he was in, in Thessalonica, the conflict started after three weeks. But he would speak boldly. This is described in that he was not uh, fearful, he's not cowed, he's not restrained because he may uh, generate uh, some reaction. So he has that, that level of confidence. The word that's used here in 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 is the word uh, uh, parasiazomai, which means to speak with confidence, to speak with boldness, to speak with courage. And so Paul is definitely going to speak out and address the issues. But it addresses not only the, the motivation behind his teaching, but and his attitude, but it also addresses uh, the fact that that he's not going to let any sort of fear, worry, anxiety impact what he is doing. So he's not going to come across as being defensive or come across as being hostile because he's not operating from a position of weakness in terms of fear. He's operating from a position uh, from a position of strength. And so as he goes goes forward. Uh, he makes the gospel very, very clear. Now, as we look back last time, we saw that sometimes this produced this kind of hostility as it did in uh, Philippi, where they, the people were very much against him. They beat them, they uh, threw them into prison, and then eventually God, God released them, and he went on. So there's, there's always the risk of some sort of hostility. Now let's just look at the doctrine of spiritual courage. What does the Bible teach about spiritual courage? Well, first of all, as we do in any in any doctrine, we need to understand the basic vocabulary, understand the basic words. Vocabulary is so important. This is one reason today we see a battle that has been going on for the last two generations. 
the foundation for this goes back even into the 50s, attacking language, attacking the meaning of meaning of words, and attacking interpretation. This is very much prevalent in in, in postmodern thinking. Is that words really don't have uh, have meaning? They they can mean one thing to one person and mean something else to another. And if that's true, then how can any of us communicate? How can those postmodern folks? even communicate with us because they want us to interpret the words that come out of their mouth or or that they write literally, but in the process they're saying that nobody's words can be taken literally and that, that nothing should be interpreted in the light of the intent of the author, but their words need to be interpreted in the light of what they intend to communicate. So it's completely uh, irrational and and illogical. So we have to start with words and vocabulary, and here's the uh, here's the Greek word that we find here in this particular context. As I said, it's pronounced parasiazomai, and it means to speak with boldness, to speak with confidence. It has the idea of expressing oneself freely without any inhibitions, speaking openly, speaking uh, fearlessly. It has the idea of uh, having the courage to go forward even in the midst of opposition. And then when you, ha- then the bottom word at the bottom of the screen is a noun form, uh, parousia, which it refers to the state of boldness or a state of courage or confidence. Another word that we have, a synonym, of that, well, for those of you who who like language, I saw uh, interesting. There's there's some of these gr- grammar uh, based websites that are putting funny little things out there, and one one of these I saw said, "What is a synonym for synonym?" I thought about that a long time. I don't think there is a synonym for a synonym. How ironic! But anyway, this is another synonym. Thorseo, which is used all in similar uh, contexts, and it also has the idea of being confident or courageous. In fact, this is the word that 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 Jesus uses in John sixteen thirty three when he tells his disciples. And remember, John sixteen is in the context of the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse is God's or Christ's instruction, rather to his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. So in chapter 13, they're having the uh, Passover meal. In chapter uh, 14, they are... um, they're they're still in the upper room, and then by chapter 15, they're leaving and they're walking on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus has continued to to, to instruct them. And then John 17, we see Jesus' high priestly prayer when he arrives at at Gethsemane. So this is that context in John 16:33 says, "These things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace." In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Now, if we just think about that verse a little bit, we need to say, well, just what what are the contrasts and comparisons that we have here? He says in the first place that in him, that means when we're walking in fellowship, when we're abiding in him all the way through the upper room discourse, Jesus uses that phrase in me to relate to those who are abiding in him, those who are walking in and, and fellowship, those who are trusting him, so that if we're trusting in him, you can have peace. That means you can have contentment, you can be relaxed, you can have a relaxed mental attitude, you can not feel threatened or anxious, you not feeling stressed out because you have to uh, take a stand and witness to somebody. He says, in me you may have peace, and that indicates that the potential is there for every believer, but if you're not in fellowship, you won't have it. So you may, in me, you may have tr- peace, and that's contrasted with what you have in the world. In the world, outside of the body of Christ, there's tribulation. There's, there's opposition. The world is in a state of chaos and corruption due to sin. In the world, you have tribulation. So what's the solution? Inside, there's peace, tranquility, you're calm. But outside, there's all of this chaos. There's opposition, hostility. And he says, take courage 
because I have overcome the world. Now, this is a great passage in dealing with with the concept of being an overcomer because Jesus uses a perfect tense verb here indicating that before he goes to the cross, he has already overcome. He's already had victory over the world. The, the verb for overcome is the verb nikao, which means to have victory. It's, it's from the noun nike, which is where, which relates to the goddess of victory in the, in the Greek, uh, pantheon. But nike has been anglicized to Nike. And that's where we get the brand name for the, uh, the, the, the Nike athletic shoes and all of their their various uh, uh, their, their their various uh, athletic supplies, and so it's the idea of having victory in a contest. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about the fact that Jesus has been living in the world since the time of of his birth, and before he goes to the cross. He can say, I've had victory over the world system. The pressure brought against him by the world system, the the culture in which he was, did not win the battle with him. And he has had victory. That victory has been completed before he's arrested, before he goes to the cross. He has won that battle. So this is really a spiritual life issue. The word overcoming and victory is always related to spiritual life. And most Christians, there's a few, mostly people who believe in the free grace gospel, who don't understand that. But there are even some in the free grace movement who tragically do not understand this, and they want to make overcoming a positional issue that every Christian has overcome. But we all know that not every Christian is a victor. Not every Christian wins in the spiritual life. There are many who have uh, become run over by the world system. So Jesus is saying that we can have courage because he overcame the world. We can overcome the world because his resources are the word of God and the spirit of God, and our resources are the same word of God and the same spirit of God. So he's saying we can have courage, and that's this... um, this word, uh, tharsos. We can be, have courage and because we have this spiritual courage. It's not the kind of battlefield courage or moral courage that unbelievers have. This is a distinct kind of courage that comes as a result of abiding in Him. So now that we've looked at the basic vocabulary, let's look at defining the term. Uh, Aristotle once said, a lot of uh, argument and disagreement can be dealt with if we would just carefully define our terms as we talk about them. So let's try to carefully define what courage is. It's the ability to do something even when we are afraid, even when we're in pain, or even when we're overwhelmed by emotions such as grief or sorrow or despite possible negative consequences. So it means the ability to go ahead and do something, even though it may hurt, even though it may cost us something, even though there are other circumstances where it would be much more comfortable to do something else. Sometimes we would rather do anything than what this calls upon, but in spite of that, uh, those negative consequences, we are going to uh, go forward and do the right thing the right way and let the chips fall where they may. Now, it's important to understand the, those things. We have to, therefore, know uh, what the right thing is. We have to know the right thing. What does Scripture say we are to do? And then we have to know the right way to do it. And for the Christian, we know that we're to deal with the unbeliever in grace because we are, for the unbeliever, we are their, their point of contact with the grace of God. The only way they can come within any kind of concrete way to understand God's grace is by looking at us and watching us, which is why living according to a gracious manner and dealing with them in grace is is so important. So we want to deal with them not on the basis of what they deserve, because they may be an idiot. They may be abusive. They may be hostile to us. And that doesn't mean that we're just going to be someone that they just walk over, but we're going to respond to them in kindness and gentleness and grace, even though that may be the last thing that we think they they deserve. 
So we're going to deal with people in grace. We're going to deal with this, them in humility because we understand that we're in a relationship with God. God has said to take the gospel to the world and that we're on that mission. And it really doesn't matter how that person responds to us in one sense because we are doing what our fathers commanded us to do, what our Lord has commanded us to do. And we're taking the word to an unbelieving world and expecting opposition. And because we expect opposition, we shouldn't be surprised. Unfortunately, in our country, because there's so little, and historically there's been so little opposition, uh, we, we are surprised today because it's, the environment's going to be much more, uh, be much more hostile. So we respond in grace, humility, and kindness. We're not treating them on the basis of how they deserve, but how they don't. We don't let anger, anger, reaction, all these things seep in because we basically are self-absorbed, and that's the orientation of our sin nature, and we take things personally. Rejecting Christ isn't necessarily rejecting us, and often we do. We think, well, if you're going to reject the gospel, you're rejecting me, so we take it personally, and then we get mad or we get upset or we get angry or all these other sinful mental attitude sins become apparent in how we're handling people. So we need to, uh, maybe if we think that we're going to be involved in a witnessing situation, Thanksgiving's coming up, Christmas is coming up, we all have to deal uh, with with unbelieving relatives and friends, uh, that we need to pray a lot, maybe memorize various scriptures, such as in Proverbs, that, we, that a soft answer turns away wrath. We need to pray through those promises, claim those promises, repeat those promises as we go into these kinds of situations. We've all been involved in circumstances and witnessing situations where we get insulted, where where somebody says something and that that is is hostile, and we have to learn to just step around it in grace and in humility. One of the things that I've become more and more aware of over the last probably decade, even though I'm a far cry from developing skills at this, is the importance of of taking a lot of time to listen to somebody say what they're going to say and listen to their objections without just jumping in and telling them the answer because I know the answer and and we know what's right. And so we want to get that out there. And a lot of times with I see with a lot of Christians is they know the gospel. They've got John 3.16, John 3.36, Acts 16.31, maybe Ephesians 2.8.9 memorized. And what they want to do is pull out their gospel gun and start shooting somebody with it without preparing the groundwork, doing the, the spade work before they plant the seed. But, you know, we, we have to recognize people are in all kinds of places on that spectrum. Some have never had a seed planted. Some have, have never had it watered. Paul uses that analogy that, that, that he planted Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So a person may take, uh, 10 minutes or 10 years or 30 years to finally trust Christ as Savior. And we can't be impatient. We can't be in a hurry to give them the gospel because sometimes, and this happens in a lot of situations, people don't necessarily understand why they need the gospel because they don't understand sin. And it may take some time to help people understand what sin is. There's such a distortion, even in the Christian community, about what sin is, not to mention the reaction that comes out of the unbelieving community because they think of sin only in some judgmental way. Sadly, they've probably run across some some fighting fund legalist who's been bashing them over the head that they're going to go to hell for all their sin, and they haven't properly uh, been grace-oriented or understood the issue, and they've been very judgmental in the whole approach. So sometimes we have to really stop and think and ask people questions to make sure we understand where they're coming from and what their thinking is and what kind of understanding they have about Christianity already. So we, they, we just ask questions. And the, um, one of the things that I've been reading, I've read lately that has impressed me about this 
is this book about the secret thoughts of an unlikely convert by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. And she was, um, many of you have heard me mention her books before, but she was a uh, uh, reared in a nominal Roman Catholic home. Uh, she drifted uh, very quickly to a left political persuasion, far radical left, uh, radical liberal, uh, lesbian, Marxist, and uh, she got a uh, doctorate and she was hired to teach at, at Syracuse University. And she has an agenda to convert everyone to her radical uh, feminist Marxist ways. And so she's in the process of writing a book to expose and de- debunk uh, the Christian right. And she wrote an article in the Syracuse paper, and it w- she got a lot of people who loved what she said. All those letters went in one box. She got people who hated what she said. All those letters went in another box. But a pastor wrote her a letter, and he just asked her questions. And they weren't the they weren't gotcha questions. They weren't questions that were designed to to put her down. They were thoughtful questions asking her to further explain what it was that she believed and where she got the information to support what she said. And it was done in kindness and grace, and she couldn't figure out which way, what to do with that letter, whether to throw it in, in the, the, the hostile pile or the, the pile that, that, uh, that liked her. And she, she'd throw it in the trash, and she'd take it out of the trash. And for a couple of weeks, this went on. Finally, she called the pastor. And to make a long story short, the pastor and his wife invited her over for dinner. She didn't know what to expect. She's got like a butch haircut and all this other stuff. And she goes, and they never mentioned the gospel. They weren't in a hurry to shoot her with the gospel. They wanted to get to know her, and this went on for months. They developed a friendship. They had a lot of discovered. They had a lot of mutual intellectual uh, interest together. Things that they talked about, some things they agreed on, some things they didn't agree on. But their debates and their discussion were always agreeable. And over time, her defenses went down, and she would ask this pastor some questions. But one thing that happened, she knew she had to read her Bible in order to attack the, uh, the Christian right because that was their that was their marching orders. So she began to read the Bible. She would ask him questions. He would say, "Well, you need to read this and you need to read that." But he let her sort of uh, take the initiative. And it took about two years, and then she trusted Christ as Savior. And she's gone from the far left to the, not, not, not necessarily the far right, but from being an anti-family, anti-children, anti-marriage person. She's married to a pastor. She, they have, because she was too old by the time they got married to have children, they've adopted and fostered a number of children, and she's homeschooled them all. So she's gone from being being a, a feminist Marxist liberal to being a free market capitalist uh, who is rearing uh, children in her home, homeschooling them, and is is a believer. Now, there's some things that we might quibble with in terms of her theology because she was saved as a as a, from a, a Presbyterian Reformed background. But what's remarkable is the way that she handles herself in the midst of crowds. You can YouTube some of her videos and just watch how she handles herself in the midst of a hostile audience, and that's and, and that's that's fascinating. But what we see in looking at her is the importance of of this dialogue that took place and not being afraid to ask questions and just to go through that process. Now, there's a couple of other books that I've got. I've read bits and pieces of both of them. One is by Oz Guinness, who's written a number of books, uh, and I've enjoyed reading him. He is uh, one of Francis Schaeffer's, uh, the late Francis Schaeffer's sons-in-law, and and he's got a book that just came out in July, but I haven't had time to get into much yet, called Fool's Talk. And that's the focus of this book is just how to talk to unbelievers. And, now, and the unbelievers aren't the fools. I think he takes that from the fact that Paul talks about the focus on Christ and is foolish to the um, to the Greek. And so he says, but I'm a fool for Christ's sake. So this is this is it's to help. Uh, believers come to understand how they can c- uh, cultivate 
this this uh, ability to dialogue with unbelievers. Another book is called Conversational Evangelism by Norm Geisler and his son David, who's had a campus ministry for about 25 years or so and has really developed the ability to ask questions and develop conversations with unbelievers that don't end up becoming just headbutting contests. So one thing we need to remember is that as we are uh, presenting the gospel, the, it's not only giving the right information, but doing it the right way. And uh, it's the old adage that, that you attract more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. And so we need to think about how we say the problem is that a lot of us come out of a background where the people who talked about how you say what you say were not at all concerned about what you said. But we all know that it's important what you say, but it's also, it is important how, how you say it. And so Paul exhibited this. He is very clear and he is going to, um, present the case the right way. It takes courage to engage unbelievers. It takes courage to engage the world. Uh, one example we've just seen in Houston is uh, the the stick-to-itiveness, the endurance, the perseverance of the uh, pastors who took a stand up against this Houston Equal Rights Ordinance. Uh, and that was spearheaded to a large degree by Dave Welch, who's, who exhibited this kind of courage, who, in fact, started the Houston Area Pastors Council, the Texas Pastors Council, U.S. Pastors Council. He's trying to expand this. But this is really, Houston is ground zero for this pastoral organization and involvement. And they lost a lot of battles over the last 18 months until they won the war. And that just shows the importance of continuing to trust God, continuing to persevere, and continuing to deal with the unbelieving community and the non-Christian community in grace and kindness. I've seen how how Dave handled himself in a number of situations, how other pastors did as well in confronting the mayor and in confronting uh, city council members and talking through the issues here and trying to uh, reach an agreement leading up to this. But the other side just didn't want to go along with it and kept doing all kinds of things to circumvent and telling lies, public lies, all kinds of things. But it's, it's again, we have to have the courage of our convictions to get out into the marketplace and to take a stand for the truth of God's, of God's word. So courage means the ability to do things even when we would rather be doing a thousand other things. We want to do the right thing and do it the right way. There are different kinds of courage. Under the third point, there are different types of courage. We talk about physical or battle courage, and we all can think of numerous examples of men and women who have been, whose valor has been recognized on the field of battle in, in the military with uh, uh, bronze stars, silver stars, uh, distinguished service medals, the, the uh, Medal of Honor. And that battle courage is something that just kicked in as a result of their training. And they didn't stop and think about it. They were trained well, and when they, in the heat of battle, they did the right thing. And they stood up even when it might cost them their life to do, do the right thing. Now, a lot of people may have battle courage, but that's a lot different from moral courage. And a lot of literature talks about the difference between battle courage and moral courage. Moral courage is the strength of our convictions in areas related to ethical or moral challenges. And we have a lot of people who can, um, can, can function that way in terms of uh, in terms of of moral courage uh, in terms of battle courage but then they don't have uh they don't have the strength of of morality uh to handle it in that kind of a bat of, of a battle you know an example of physical courage was seen just recently in the situation that occurred with that shooter at umpqua college uh, umpqua community college up in uh, up in oregon uh, about a month or so ago, and there was one student, a guy by the name of Chris Mintz, who was a 30-year-old Army veteran, and he had military training, and on that particular day, it was also his son's birthday, 
But when he heard the gunfire, he his training kicked in. He ran to the sounds of the gunfire, put his life on the line to uh, save his fellow students. He was shot seven times in the process, but he survived. And that's a great example of physical courage. In moral courage, you have people who's, who it takes longer, perhaps, and we're much more aware of the dangers to our life. And a, a great example of this was Oscar Schindler. Uh, Oscar Schindler was responsible for saving the lives of, of uh, hundreds of Jews during the Second World War. He was not a Christian, so it's not spiritual courage, but he was a, a German industrialist, and he was a member of the Nazi Party, and he's credited with saving the lives of over over 1,200 Jews uh, during the Holocaust because he employed them in his factories, and as such, he would get them designated as as being necessary, and therefore he survived them. We had a man here in Houston uh, who just recently passed away, Leon Cooper, uh, started a company in the early 70s called the Houston Pecan Company. It's still in operation now. His daughter runs it. And I just inadvertently um, found myself there about four years ago, and Jim Myers and I were going over there to get some uh, some some. I was getting some Texas pecans to take over to Israel to give as gifts to um, give as gifts to the guides and other people we work with over there, and we walked in. I had no idea the owner was Jewish. I just needed pecans. I wanted to get a good grade Texas pecans. Looked at, Googled it, found the place. It's not that far away. Went there, and we went in. And Leon's in a, in, in a got a walker, and we saw this old guy because he was about ninety at the time, and he's scooting around and everything. And I was talking to his daughter, and I was telling her that, and and when I saw her. And I looked around a little bit. I, I thought, I think she may be Jewish. And so I told her we were going to Israel, and her eyes lit up. And uh, so I told her what we wanted it for. And Jim is over by the wall, and there are these these uh, newspaper clippings that are framed on the wall. And he, I could just see him out of the corner of my eye, and he's reading these clippings. And he turned around, and he asked uh, Toby, the daughter, said, is, is are these articles about your dad? And they were articles that were written in the Houston Post, if you can remember back that far, written in the Houston Post in the late 80s when Schindler's List came out. And Spielberg came to Houston, and Leon Cooper uh, was highlighted in the newspaper because he, was, he wasn't one of these 1,200, but it was, he was also saved by uh, Oscar Schindler. And so here is a Gentile that's honored by the Jews as the righteous among the Gentiles, because he's willing to put his life on the line to save the lives of Jews. Now, that's an example of moral courage, but that's different from Corey Tin Boom, and I want to make this distinction clear. Corey Tin Boom was a believer, and she and her family were hiding and saving Jews during World War II, and that story is told in The Hiding Place. If you've never seen the film, see the film, read the book, uh, Jeanette Cliff George, who played Corey Ten Boom in the film that came out in the early 70s, uh, is a founder of the theater group here in Houston, Christian theater group called the AD Players. And they always do some fine, very fine work over there. In fact, they're just starting to build their new theater, which is right in the Galleria area there on uh, uh, roughly uh, between Chimney Rock. I think it's right on the corner of Yorktown and Westheimer. Prime real estate. They've had this huge lot there for years but now they're going to build their uh build their theater and but that was the Corey the Tim Boom family her sister was killed in died in Ravensbrook her father was killed but that was spiritual courage because they're acting in the power of God on the basis of the word of God to defend the Jewish people so that's why I want to make this distinction between physical or battle courage and somebody who has physical or battle courage may not have moral courage And there are a lot of people who have moral courage because they have the strength of their convictions and are willing to do that. And, you know, I just came back from Preston City, and we had the uh, uh, 200th anniversary there, and I'm reminded it takes – I think it takes takes physical courage to cut through 18 inches of ice and get baptized in that icy water. I mean, that's real strength of your convictions. That may may be spiritual courage, too, because it's related to obeying the Scripture. But but I'm trying to make this distinction. Moral courage and spiritual courage may look the same, but the difference is whether the person is 
a, a believer and operating on obedience to the word and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So, fourth point. Courage is often related to confidence. In physical courage, we have confidence in our training. We have confidence in our physical strength, our physical skill to face a physical threat. That is physical courage. Uh, in moral courage, uh, in moral courage, we have confidence in the rightness or the correctness of our of our uh, position of our and uh, uh, the rightness of our action. And then in spiritual courage, we have confidence in God and His ability to sustain us in times of adversity, hostility, suffering, or uh, persecution. In Proverbs twenty-eight one, we read. The wicked flee when no one pursues. See, there's a complete lack of courage. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. So that relates to physical courage, spiritual courage, and a recognition that the battle is the Lord. Uh, in Hebrews 10.33, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations. He's writing to a Jewish audience Jewish Christians, Jewish believers, who probably are from the priesthood but face a lot of hostility, adversity, opposition. And he says, while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven. Their personal sense of their eternal destiny gave them courage and strength in the midst of hostility. Under point five, in spiritual courage, our confidence is in God so we can act courageously in fulfilling God's mission for us under the power of God the Holy Spirit. So we we are walking by the Spirit. And, and this works in both Old Testament, doesn't involve the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but we have passages like Psalm 138.3, where the psalmist says, In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. So even in the Old Testament, without the Holy Spirit, God emboldened believers to do the right thing the right way. And, of course, our passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. So how do we... What's the action plan? How do we become spiritually courageous? Well, first of all, we have to be in fellowship. We have to be in right relationship with the Lord, which means we need to keep short accounts and confession of sin. When we're walking by the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit can strengthen us and empower us to do the right thing the right way in grace orientation and humility. Seventh point, spiritual courage is always grounded Spiritual courage is always grounded in our relationship with God. Our faith is directed towards him. So there has to be a sense that God and his provision is more real to us than the opposition, the rejection, the hostility, the adversity, the persecution, maybe even the loss of life that we might face. You can only have that kind of occupation with Christ or occupation with the Lord when we spend a lot of time with him. And we build to that so that as we grow and as we mature, as we go through that process of, of, of facing opposition and hostility in small ways along the way, it strengthens our spiritual muscles so that we are prepared to face, uh, face the large challenges. So spiritual courage is grounded in our relationship with God. Ephesians 3.12, in whom? It's in Christ. It's in him that we have boldness and, uh, and access with confidence through faith in him. So it is directly related to our growth and maturation in faith. I think I've got my numbers out of order here. Um, I know I do. So we're going to renumber this. This is a point, or I skipped one, actually. So we'll look at point eight. Point eight, courage is needed in every area of application. I don't have a slide on this. When courage is needed in every area of application of doctrine, 
but especially in those areas, I think, involving people. We're so sensitive to rejection and to hostility that when we witness or when we teach, when we encourage others, when we give, uh, all of these things make us uh, uh, vulnerable. And when we bring up subjects that need to be addressed, and this especially happens in, in family situations, sometimes it happens with close friends, sometimes it even happens at work, we need to bring up subjects that are somewhat touchy, where someone may take offense and someone may react. Uh, we So sometimes we just step around it or we avoid it, uh, we don't face it head on. But when we get in any situation where the issue is doctrine, we know that God the Holy Spirit will will strengthen us, but we also know that we live in the devil's world and we may experience some pushback to one degree or another. And in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, Paul talks about his boldness. He says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in my presence, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So there he talks about uh, different kinds of boldness. And that boldness is mixed with humility directed towards the change in the life of those uh, to whom he is ministering. On point nine, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul reminds them of the spiritual courage he had to speak boldly and to face the physical consequences of torture and imprisonment when he was in Philippi. And this is exhibited in... um, in different other settings. For example, in 2 Corinthians 11. In 2 Corinthians 11 is a fascinating chapter. It's one I've read through many, many times simply because at one time, my first church, uh, I've never gone through the kind of personal assaults that I went through in that congregation. It was a very divided congregation. About half the congregation wanted to know the word and the other half didn't. And that generated some incredible hostility. But listen to what Paul says here. And here he's dealing with these uh, false false teachers. And as he deals with those false teachers, he's giving his own credentials, and he relates some of his own experience. He says, are they ministers of Christ? That's these false teachers. He says, I speak as a fool. I am more, meaning look at the evidence. He says, uh, in my labors, I'm more abundant. I work harder than anybody else. In stripes above measure, I've been whipped. I've been flagellated uh, more than anyone else. Uh, In prisons, more frequently, I get imprisoned for the gospel. And deaths often, in other words, the threat of death, the possibility of imminent death. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So that's the stripes that he's talking about in verse, verse 23. The reason is that according to the uh, Jewish law, you weren't supposed to give more than 40 stripes, so they would always subtract one just in case they miscounted, uh, so they wouldn't give 40 stripes or more. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. One of those was in Philippi. Once I was stoned, that happened in Damascus. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. And so he's been shipwrecked. He's been accosted on the highway in journeys often in perils of waters, uh, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness. He had to camp out a lot. Who knew what might attack you in the wilderness? In perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often. Now, that's not fasting for a religious reason that's fasting because you don't have any money and you don't have any food. In fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the concern. It just took courage to go be a Christian, to do what God said to do, and just to go through the daily activities of his Christian mission. Point number 10, Paul was not necessarily exceptionally courageous as a human being. Some people may say, well, Paul just was, was a tough guy because he sounds that way. He, he, could, he just had great courage, but that's not necessarily true. In 1 Corinthians 2, 3, he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. 
And he's speaking from the fact that he's reacted and he, he's in situations where his sin nature is, is influencing him towards fear, worry, and anxiety. And in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, he said, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Paul's not some superhuman without a sin nature. He's just as tempted to let things slide and maybe not address it right now as the next person. But he had the spiritual courage to always do what he was supposed to do. So in the last point, the solution is to walk by the Spirit and trust in the Lord. The Lord is my helper, Hebrews 13 says. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In God I have put my trust. So, uh, that's a quote from Psalm 56, 11. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, just a couple of other verses you might want to look up. Deuteronomy 31, 6 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. In commissioning Joshua, uh, the Lord said, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Just sort of search through the Bible for the word good courage or be strong. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, upon the Lord. That means relax, let the Lord handle the situation. Psalm 31.24 says, Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. And Psalm 134.4, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of the fact that you strengthen us, you encourage us, you embolden us, and that the key issue is our own spiritual life, that we learn your word, we prepare We trust in you, and we walk by the Spirit, and then we can do whatever we need to do, no matter what the consequence, because we know that the worst that can be done is is, uh, just to hurt the body, but we have eternal life with you, and so we should fear no threat, and we should trust in you. Father, we may come to a time in this life, in this country, where we are attacked and assaulted for our Christianity, where we're thrown in jail where we are physically abused and persecuted, and we need to develop now the ability to be bold, to have courage, and to trust in you. And we pray that we might do that. In Christ's name, amen.